Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us. Tonight's topic is COVID care for marginalized and vulnerable populations. And in this first segment, we're going to focus on public health and the pandemic, looking specifically at mitigation, disparities, and social determinants of health. For more than a year now, we've lived through the global pandemic of COVID-19 and have become all too aware of its deadly toll. People of all ages, ethnic groups, and socioeconomic backgrounds have fallen ill, and far too many have died. But within the statistics, it is clear that certain groups are more vulnerable and tend to have worse outcomes than others. Our guest tonight will help us understand why this is so and hopefully how we can turn things around. My guests are Claudia Corwin, director of the Iowa Global Health Network, who is also an occupational medicine specialist and clinical assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Welcome, Claudia. So King Ao is interim director of the Global Health Studies Program at the University of Iowa. Thank you for being with us, So King. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And Ashlisha Kaushik is medical director of Unity Point Clinic for Pediatric Infectious Diseases in Sioux City, also a clinical assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine, and a board member of the Iowa American Academy of Pediatrics. Thank you, Ashlisha, for joining us. Thank you. Claudia, I'd like to go to you first. Uh, can you help us understand how the COVID pandemic has exposed health disparities and social inequities? Sure. Thank you, Joan. So I'm really thrilled to be here. I'm honored to be here with all the other panelists. So thank you for inviting me. This is really such a layered question. First, we all know that health inequities are an age-old problem and that this is not new to this country. There are so many differential outcomes among racial and ethnic minorities in our country. Differences in maternal health, breast cancer, cardiovascular disease, kidney transplantation, and so many more. But what I think is really different during the pandemic is that many, many people who do not work in health fields have been hearing and reading about the disproportionate health experience of minority groups, immigrant groups, all of the so-called invisible workers who are keeping our country afloat right now, may be a bit more visible now. It's just a little harder to keep to turn a blind eye right now, frankly. Mm -hmm. Over the past year, there has been frequent news in all the lay media about disproportionate infection rates, hospitalizations, and death. And there is tremendous complexity underlying these COVID outcomes, like pre-existing health issues, like certainly contribute to increased risk, like heart disease, diabetes, obesity, advanced age, and certain conditions may actually well be more prevalent in certain populations. And there are behavioral factors or personal choices such as smoking or poor nutrition or obesity that may lead to increased risk. This is all true, but this is not nearly the whole story. The bigger picture requires an honest look at more systemic factors that drive these COVID outcome inequities. And this is done by addressing the structural and social determinants of health. There are many sort of visual or conceptual diagrams and descriptions of this, but essentially, what I'm talking about is comprised of nearly every domain of the human lived experience, housing quality, access to education, reliable transportation, economic stability, the built neighborhood, food or food deserts, and so on and so on and so on. 
Two of our very own College of Public Health faculty, Rima Afifi and Nicole Novick, wrote an elegant piece recently stating that it is imperative that we broaden our concept of at risk for COVID and expand the definition from the biological to include these fundamental social variables. Take for example, the primarily Latinx migrant and seasonal farm worker population that follows crop production around our country and in Iowa. These workers typically live in crowded housing with less than ideal sanitation, eat in communal settings, travel to the fields on packed buses. In this case, poor housing, transportation, and the inability to shelter from home has led to this disproportionate risk during the pandemic in this particular population. So now I wanna switch gears just a little bit and talk about the racial disparities in the vaccine rollout in the, across this country. And any one of these things you can speak about for hours and hours. So this is just sort of a brief summary. The vaccination rate for black people is half of what it is for white people. And the gap for Latinx people is at least as wide. Again, inequities within the same social determinants of health are to blame for these disparities. On a demographic scale, Black and Latinx people often have less reliable in internet access to make an appointment, less flexible work schedules to take that one appointment that's available, and less reliable transportation to actually get to their appointment. Now, there is also a national narrative that low vaccination rates among ethnic minorities is due to hesitancy and a pervasive lack of trust of the system, again, in nearly every domain. And while this is certainly an important factor and has deep roots and cannot even begin to be explained in simplistic terms, it would be too simplistic to lay the blame for this systemic reality solely on the individual's vaccine hesitancy because this is a complex and nuanced dynamic. Vaccine hesitancy will be discussed at length a bit later in the evening, but I'll briefly mention what we're beginning to understand about migrant and seasonal farm workers. Over 80% of migrant and seasonal farm workers in, in this country are Latinx, and well over that in Iowa. And there's much generalized discussion about hesitancy among this huge and very diverse population. However, my colleagues and I have preliminary data and some anecdotal experience in Iowa that tells us most workers either intend to get the vaccine or are seriously considering getting the vaccine. And very, very few workers are saying, telling us they won't get the vaccine or don't want the vaccine. And while intending to get the vaccine, that many workers have some really serious concerns and deeply rooted worry about getting the vaccine. So the intent to get the vaccine and being worried about the vaccine are not mutually exclusive. Mm -hmm. We also know that most migrant season farm workers have strong, strong drive to work. That is why so many migrants make trips across the country, live in so-called migrant camps, often away from their families, usually away from their families and everything they know. And this drive to work and their experience with COVID over the past year may well be contributing to what we expect will be high vaccine in uptake among the migrant and seasonal farm worker population. So with that, I'll finish up my own comments by bringing attention to another great piece written for the Press Citizen by one of our panelists, Martha Carvour, 
Dr. Carver, in preparation for this evening, Dr. Carver's piece is a layered commentary about the many disruptions that this pandemic has imposed on society and the interplay with pervasive entrenched disparities in care. So I encourage everybody to read the piece and uh, maybe we could put the link on chat if people can see it. Mm -hmm. I'm super excited to pass off the baton. Joan is the panel you've created tonight. I think will really give us uh, a rich 360 degree perspective underlying really the terrible numbers and tragic experience of so many people over the past year. Thank you so much for having me. Oh gosh, thank you very much, Claudia. And what an eloquent description of these uh, these conditions that have made this disease a, a, a real um, mirror, I think, for, for all of us who look at the country we live in and um, the severe problems there are regarding health equity. I, before I, I let you leave altogether from this part of the discussion, I thought we, we might discuss for just a moment the, um, uh, the difficult circumstances, the essential workers who work in meatpacking plants were in uh, earlier this year, or last year, I guess now, when we heard in our own state and other places across the country where these uh, workers who were doing such important work were very often, you know, uh, found themselves in a situation where COVID had spread and, quite deeply into their uh, their working group. And of course, that's that's not only a problem for the people in the workplace, but then you go home, you live with your family and, and perhaps older relatives, uh, uh, people in your community can get sick as well. Those folks were really in a tough situation. Yeah. So um, there is, uh, I mean, it's you can't even begin to unpack this in a short period of time. There are so many factors that are really so discouraging and tragic about this. Um, there is some uh, positive news most recently in that, for example, one of the big Tyson plants um, in our state vaccinated about a third of their workers so far. Mm -hmm. So um, that is a positive thing. Uh, also the fact that I believe the vaccination was occurring on site because transportation to getting vaccines, making appointments for vaccines are really difficult. And so that is a bit of a bright light. As far as the migrant and seasonal farm workers are concerned, just today I was on a call with several of the state agencies like Iowa Department of Public Health, Iowa Workforce Development, talking about how to get vaccines to the migrant and seasonal farm workers that are beginning to come into our state already. And um, you know, by the end of the summer, we'll have seen at least between 5,000 and 6,000 H-2A visa holders coming into the state. And that's not including the non-H-2A visa holders. So it's really a logistical um, puzzle to try and get the migrant and seasonal farm workers vaccinated because they're not, uh, they're here for a short period of time. Um, they travel across the state. Uh, they're dispersed across the state, although there are some larger farms with more workers. So, you know, when you talk about essential workers, there are as many stories and scenarios as there are workplaces. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's complex. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for starting us off. Uh, so, King Ao, uh, you're interim director of the Global Health Studies Program here at the University of Iowa. And I wonder if you could tell us about sort of global health inequities and how these are being exacerbated by COVID-19. Again, a huge question, and I know we can't uh, give, give uh, all the answers here in just a few minutes, but, but let's expand a little bit beyond our own borders. Okay, so 
when you're looking at the global south versus the global north, I think there's kind of two, in my mind, there's two big issues. There's the issue of the fact that COVID-19 and the crisis of COVID-19 is diverting a lot of resources um, and also the economic crisis that comes with it from the global south uh, for other humanitarian needs. Um, and so if you look at the knock-on impacts on other things like malnutrition, which is rising rapidly in the rest of the world, um, the, the famine that is about to erupt uh, in Yemen, uh, at this moment when all of these aid agencies are basically cutting funding because they don't have the money because of the global economic downturn, I think that's one of the ways that COVID is most damaging to the global south. But the other way um, that I really see this huge inequity, uh, and I should also say that our COVID uh, mitigation measures that are designed for sort of wealthy countries where we can separate six feet, where we not all of us are in um, uh, you know, a gig economy, um, they don't work in a lot of the global south where you live you know, in extended communities, you can't have the six feet, maybe you don't have clean water, you have to go out and work every day or you don't have any kind of food, uh, money for food or those kind of things, right? So that's already like a huge issue. Mm -hmm. The Global South, these kind of measures created for, for us, right? That we're expecting the rest of the world to, to cooperate with. Um, but the other uh, huge way that I see this disparity between the global uh, south and, and the global north right now is with the vaccine uh, distribution and what's going on with that because initially the WHO had put together this very complicated process called the COVAX facility which was supposed to with the buy-in of like as many countries uh, as possible in the world equitably distribute these vaccines for COVID as they they're coming into being. But what you're seeing happening is that rich companies are buying up, you know, in advance the stock um, of the vaccines that are available, even beyond the needs of their population. The U.S., for example, looks like they're going to have excess by the summer, which is good news for us. But the problem is a lot of Africa, a lot of Latin America, a lot of uh, South and Southeast Asia, they don't even have uh, and they don't have the means to get vaccine for 2% of their population, for, for their healthcare workers, um, for their over 80, right? Uh, while we're vaccinating our young, healthy college kids in a few months, they don't have anything. And COVAX was supposed to solve that problem. But the problem is, um, the problem isn't the money, in fact, because you know Biden just promised 4 billion to COVAX, whereas previous administration, nothing. Um, so, and people say, well, that's great, except for the fact that money gives you nothing if you don't have supply. And right now the supply that's anticipated to come forward, most of that is being funneled to rich countries. Um, and so it's, it's a serious issue. And I was looking at the data this morning, um, the 15, let's see if I got this right, 15% of the, the global population has reserved 70% of the global supply of vaccine. And that 15% is the richest 15%. Yeah. Um, whereas COVAX is trying to guarantee 2 billion doses by the end of the year for, for a sort of global population. And the richest countries have already reserved 7 billion doses for themselves. Um, so it's a serious issue. Yeah. Uh, you uh, mentioned in a conversation we had before tonight's program that poorer countries that are in fact um, able to get some vaccines are resorting to the vaccines that have had less testing that may be less secure because they are less expensive. 
that's absolutely true. And this isn't, you know, there are, I think from the US perspective, a lot of Americans don't realize there's more than Pfizer, uh, Moderna, and now Johnson and Johnson, and then sort of that AstraZeneca that, that has been approved uh, in Europe, but not here because of various issues with how they ran their um, initial uh, clinical trials. Mm -hmm. um, but there are I think 200 vaccine candidates uh, out there in various guises. Um, and what you saw starting in December with certain um, poorer countries, they, they knew that even though Moderna and, and Pfizer were, had gone through phase three and had gone through authorization um, and were approved, they actually went out and bought um, the Russian, the Gamalaya Sputnik um, vaccine, which was still in clinical uh, trial phase three at the time. And I think they're still waiting for full approval. I think that the clinical trial was uh, in Saudi Arabia or somewhere in, in, the, in the Arab region. But so that's completed, but the thing is they haven't reached full approval yet. Um, but you, you see uh, certain countries in Latin America bought um, pre-purchased Gamalaya Sputnik because it's cheaper mm -hmm. and, and it's not approved and a rich country wouldn't touch it. And you see the same thing with a lot of Southeast Asian countries, they were buying Sinovac. Um, Sinovac VAC is a Chinese vaccine that's also not uh, completely approved yet, um, but they don't really have other options, right? Because they can't afford uh, and they can't get access to those kind of top-notch uh, vaccines because they've been bought up by the people who have all the money. Yeah. Uh, and so they're using the less tested, perhaps less safe, we hope not less safe um, mm -hmm. vaccines. Yeah, well, you know, and then getting back to the to the more wealthy North, uh, we still have all these reports coming in every day. The news gets worse in various countries in Europe that, you know, went through severe shutdowns during part of the year last year, kind of opened up again. We know about Italy. We know that Germany is having trouble again. Much of the UK, they've got a pretty good vaccination rate, I guess, in the UK. But you mentioned AstraZeneca, and this is, you know, one of, one of the vaccines that has now been put on hold by some of the EU countries because there seems to be some concern. Um, There's no blood clot, but I'll tell you, I think okay. a little bit of that is political payback because of what happened with vaccine distribution uh, in Europe. Um, AstraZeneca had promised to provide a certain number of doses to the EU and a certain number of doses to the UK, um, but their facility in the EU had production problems, so they weren't going to meet that dosage requirement at the same time as Moderna had production problems and uh, Pfizer had production problems, so the EU was looking at this huge shortage um, and they wanted some of the doses that were coming from the UK because the UK facilities were at full steam and were meeting uh, requirements. And the UK said, no, <laughs> we have a separate agreement on these facilities in the UK, they're ours, we're not sharing. Yeah. Um, and so a little bit of that, I think, is political payback, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Well, do you see this situation, uh, where, where do you see things going in the next six months by the end of the year? What, what do you think we're looking at? Well, so encouragingly, I was looking at the data. I'll tell you, three, three weeks ago, uh, the only poor country that had received any um, vaccine was uh, Guinea, I think, like 50 doses of Gamalaya Sputnik uh, three weeks ago, whereas we had already, we had already had millions as well as Europe uh, and the UK and Israel, <laughs> they're at the top of the charts. Um, but in the last week, it's been really encouraging. The AstraZeneca, not the AstraZeneca kind of under their label, but the, the generic AstraZeneca being produced out of India and out of South Korea. So AstraZeneca has um, a generic uh, 
um, licensing that was part of um, in their development that they kind of built in at the very beginning. So um, generic versions of the AstraZeneca are being produced in these, these much cheaper facilities at a much lower cost. And that's what the COVAX facility is using. Um, but in the last week, um, you're seeing hundreds of thousands of doses starting to go out. So in the first quarter of this year, they wanna get you know, 2% of the population may be vaccinated uh, in all of the COVAX participating countries, they hope. So it's getting better, but they're still, I mean, the WHO is not happy with the, the kind of queue jumping that the rich countries have done despite their kind of lip service to commitment to solidarity. Yeah. Wow. Well, thank you for that sobering uh, um, news. But but as you say, maybe a little glimmer of hope there at, at the end. Yeah. Um, Ashley Shah, let's go to you and talk about kids. Um, you're a pediatric infectious disease specialist. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see uh, in your community or when you're working in Iowa. Um, how do socioeconomic disparities impact children and adolescents uh, in COVID or, or in other circumstances? Yeah, thank you, Joan. And it's great to be here. It's an honor uh, to be a part of this very timely discussion addressing socioeconomic determinants of health in context of COVID-19. As we have all seen, the COVID-19 pandemic has been unprecedented in so many ways, uh, including exacerbating socioeconomic disparities, as you know, we had an extensive discussion till now, and also the impact on children and adolescents. Studies have shown that the risk of exposure to COVID-19 because of the living conditions as well as the prevalence and severity of COVID-19 disease have been much higher in children in these disadvantaged populations, not only in the United States, but across the world. Crowded living conditions and unstable housing, they contribute to transmission of COVID-19 and can hinder prevention strategies like hygiene measures, self-isolation, self-quarantine. Additionally, more people of racial and ethnic minorities are employed in occupational settings, like was mentioned in meat packaging industry, for instance, and we locally saw a surge in Siouxland area as well, you know, in those kids presenting to us. Um, so it's just not, you know, the socioeconomic background, but also, I mean, where they work, they bring the things home also. So, you know, the living conditions are bad and the working conditions are not good either. So mm -hmm. if we talk about hospitalizations due to COVID-19, all the literature evidence supports uh, the fact that majority of the patients hospitalized with COVID-19 have been uh, people of color. So the CDC estimates that among all patients hospitalized with COVID, and this is scary data, like, you know, last year, all the patients hospitalized with COVID in United States, the majority that is 44% for Blacks, followed by 36% Hispanic or Latinos and 16% for white patients. This is aggregate data from the CDC um, as checked last night. Um, moreover, uh, you know, underlying medical conditions, they play a huge role in this, a higher incidence of diabetes, high blood pressures, higher body mass indices. All these are risk factors that place uh, these racial minorities um, at you know, high risk of developing greater illness severity and dying from COVID than other racial groups. Another shocking, um, I mean, rather you know, surprising, but it's it's sad uh, piece of data. Also, a study of selected states and cities with data on COVID nineteen deaths by race and ethnicity recently published on the CDC website shows. Um, that 34% of deaths were among non-Hispanic Black people, although this group accounts only for about 12% of the total US population. 
Mm-hmm. Um, when we talk about uh, people aged less than 25 years of age, a recent CDC study showed that racial and ethnic disparities in COVID-19 incidents amongst persons in this age group in 16 US jurisdictions were substantial during last year among minority groups like Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islanders. Um, American Indians and Alaskan Natives, along with Hispanics and Blacks. So we tend to forget these groups, but these were also like, you know, some of these groups had the highest relative increase in COVID-19 over last year, when we look from January to December data. Mm-hmm. In terms of severity of disease, multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children, commonly called NISI, is a rare but a very severe condition that occurs approximately two to four weeks after occurrence or after COVID-19 exposure in children and adolescents. Majority of children with multi-system inflammatory syndrome need extensive care and they can get very, very sick. Several pooled analyses, uh, CDC data, a recent study in JAMA and one of my published systematic reviews in pediatric infectious disease journal, we have all shown that uh, multi-system inflammatory syndrome disproportionately affects children and adolescents from racial and ethnic minority groups. So in all this rhetoric so far, I've mentioned like the severe disease going on ventilators as well as suffering from multi-system inflammatory syndrome. All of these have mirrored, the children and adolescents have kind of mirrored the adult population uh, coming from racial and ethnic minorities. You know, the adults in these populations have gotten admitted more and so are the children, you know. So it's, um, it's, it's not surprising and it's surprising in a way, you know, it's just very sad. Um, another recent study showed that 60% of patients like children uh, age six to 12 years with this syndrome needed intensive care admission. And to no surprise, ICU admission was also more likely in the non-Hispanic black patients. So not only are these marginalized populations facing risks of greater acquisition of COVID-19 infection, but also bearing the brunt of severe disease as we discussed, right? In addition, there are other tangential health consequences of the pandemic that are far reaching and that we must not forget in terms of mental health challenges, physical health issues, and also dropping numbers in immunization overall for you know, other serious vaccine preventable diseases, which are predisposing these populations to those serious monsters. So I, I would like to draw attention to that too. Like, you know, the COVID-19 pandemic has not just affected these in terms of disease, but also had laid bare many inequities and exacerbated the vast differences in health outcomes tied to race, ethnicity, and incomes. So the lack of equity in resources means less green spaces for most poor families living in crowded conditions with no backyards, no babysitters or nannies, for most part, because they can't afford them. During the pandemic, it just meant that most of these kids were stuck at home with greater screen exposure, more screen times, resulting in additional dimensional physical problems like increasing overweight and increasing obesity, and you know, with their own bag of troubles, uh, including high blood pressures and diabetes in the long run, and also mental health issues like increased aggressive behavior, attention deficit issues, anxiety and depression, suicidal ideation. In fact, you know, American Academy of Pediatrics has labeled this a total era of mental health crises for childhood and adolescent patients. So they are saying that these mental health crises that we are seeing are some of the most devastating effects this pandemic has had on marginalized pediatric populations. So I guess, you know, these, there's no question that vulnerable populations are the worst affected. And because they are the worst affected, that leads just to the second part of the conversation, which probably the other experts will lead us into is that, you know, efforts to ensure adequate vaccine acceptance in these populations should be a priority for the scientific community. So I would say all these reasons that I mentioned are compelling reasons that underline the urgent need for COVID-19 vaccine acceptance for children once it gets approved for these marginalized populations once we have like safe and effective vaccines um, 
In conclusion, I'll just say that establishing healthcare equity should be a priority and ensuring equitable and timely access to preventive measures and vaccination that eligible is important to address these youth racial and uh, ethnic disparities and gaps. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, you've all really um, uh, made that that last pitch very strongly that this is this is what we're dealing with right now, but it's really exposed a terrible kind of inequity and, and um, um, unfairness in our in our system. Do you think there's the political will? I just ask anybody to answer this. Do you believe that uh, having gone through all of this and um, even those people who are only a little bit tuned into what's happening nationally are becoming more aware of what different um, groups of Americans are suffering just looking at our own country now? Do you feel that there is um, national will to try to address some of these um, inequities that that only exacerbate problems when you have something like COVID? I, I mean, I can speak a little bit about, um, what was I gonna say? Uh, I totally went blank. Um, I, th I think there's a huge discussion. There's a huge discussion in global health. And I think it's also in the, in the public health, uh, American public health field where this is an opportunity. Mm -hmm. Like it's very clear that COVID-19 has revealed um, the social determinants of health. We've been talking about it for ages, but COVID-19 has absolutely exacerbated everything along the lines of sort of vulnerable populations. And it's just a lot harder to ignore. But then you see a lot of conversation right now about this is a moment. This is a moment when, when we can reform the healthcare system. This is a moment where we can reform global health to look at these social dis determinants and structural determinants and really attack them, you know, from the ground up. This is a moment that we can rearrange everything. Is it gonna go anywhere? I don't know, but there's a lot of talk about this being a, a, um, an opportunity because mm -hmm. of the crisis. Yeah. Well, as we wrap up this segment, I'd like to uh, share a question that came in from a global health student here at the University of Iowa. And um, she had two questions. You have all just answered the first one, but the second one was, how can students who are interested in improving care for marginalized and vulnerable populations get involved in the field? What, what can the students you're all working with today do? They can actually, um, I have a suggestion of joining a coalition, statewide coalition, Iowa Immunizers. We are very, very active in terms of promoting vaccination efforts uh, at all levels in the state. And, you know, we have um, the partnering organizations include the American Academy of Pediatrics and lots of, I think more than 20 organizations across the state, including nurse practitioners. Uh, University of Iowa is also probably uh, one of the participants. I mean, uh, organizations that is a collaborating member and Blanks Children is, Unity Point Health is, so several large health organizations. I think it's a great way. It's not like everybody's, it's voluntary and, you know, they have monthly meetings and uh, maybe Joanne can connect those students to Elizabeth, who's the coordinator. Maybe that's one of the avenues in which they can, you know, they really give their services and we really appreciate more voices there. Yeah, thank you. Um, so the group was Iowa Immunizers and we will share that information, absolutely. Um, uh, Claudia or Sokang, anything else to say before we wrap up this segment? Um, so I think one thing to say for the, to the uh, young people who are asking the questions is that, you know, public health has always been the poor sister of healthcare. And for forever, medical schools had the big fancy buildings and the public health schools didn't. But I think one, again, you know, secondary, um, uh, sort of, I don't know if you could put it this way, but benefit of the pandemic, although that sounds a bit 
um, deaf to say it that way, but just the same, is that the uh, field of public health has been elevated and people are understanding that it's far reaching. It involves so many different things. And that um, as you go through your studies and whatever area you're interested in, you could always pair it with some studies in public health. And they will, public health will complement almost any other field of study. So that's one way to approach it. And the other thing I say is be bold. If you're interested in something, someone in something, look them up, call someone up, be bold, advocate for yourself, make a phone call, say you want to work with them. This is who you are. And don't be shy. <laughs> I would second uh, Claudia. Well put. <laughs> yeah. Nice thoughts. Thank you. Great. Well, gosh, uh, thank you all for being with us for this uh, first part of the discussion. Claudia Corwin, thank you. So King Ao and Ashlisha Kaushik, thank you all very, very much. And I hope all of you uh, watching will please stay with us for the next segment of World Canvas, when we'll speak more specifically about vulnerable populations here in the United States. So we'll be back in just a moment. Thank you. Welcome back to World Canvas and our discussion of COVID care for marginalized and vulnerable populations. I'm Joan Care for University of Iowa International Programs. In this part of the program, we want to focus more directly on groups within the US that have increased vulnerability to diseases like COVID-19 and less access to high quality health care. My guests are Martha Carvor, Assistant Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Carver College of Medicine and Assistant Professor in the Department of Epidemiology in the College of Public Health here at the University of Iowa. Thank you, Martha, for being with us. And uh, yes, and Denise Martinez is Associate Dean and Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine in the Carver College of Medicine at the University of Iowa. Thank you for being here, Denise. Mm -hmm. Kevin Washburn is the Dean of the University of Iowa College of Law. He is also a member of the Chickasaw Nation of Oklahoma. Welcome, Dean Washburn. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jackie Easley-McGee is the Director of Community and Diversity Services at Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines. Thank you so much, Jackie, for taking the time to join us. Thank you, and I'm proud to be here on this panel. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll start with you, Martha. When we look at our state specifically, what do we see as the impact of COVID on different racial or ethnic groups? Yes, well, thank you, Joan, for putting together uh, such an incredible session tonight. I learned a lot from the panelists already, and some of what I will say will pick up on some of those themes too. Um, so in Iowa and around the US and really around the world, um, we've seen very consistent disparities um, for really every um, historically minoritized racial or ethnic group. Um, the ways in which um, this has played out um, in terms of the course of the pandemic or some of the specific types of disparities may differ, but we've seen this very consistently. Um, and this is the result um, sort of um, threading back with some of the comments from the first session. Um, this is the result of longstanding structural disparities for um, for a number of patient groups and patient populations. We've seen that here in Iowa, we've seen that throughout the United States. Um, I think what is important to recognize when we think about um, the idea of vulnerable populations is also um, what vulnerable means and how we talk about these types of terms and expressions. And so when we're talking about health disparities or we're talking about vulnerable and marginalized populations, it's really important to place the the onus of that, um, of the issue or the concern of the problem on the system that has perpetuated that. Um, so these are um, vulnerabilities or marginalization or marginalizing effects 
um, that are the result of a system. And that's important because when we have a systematic or a structural problem, it requires a systematic and a structural solution. Um, so when we talk about this in terms of disparities for patients in Iowa or around the US, around the world, um, it's also important to highlight, and again, this will, this will tie back with some of what was discussed in the last session, that we're talking about disparities or inequities that have played out in COVID, but also in other impacts of the pandemic. So we talk about the infection and, um, and mortality rates related to COVID specifically, but also impacts um, related to the socioeconomics around the pandemic. So things like job loss um, or housing loss or food insecurity um, or employment or educational opportunities that have been largely disrupted during the pandemic. And we've seen many of those disruptions throughout throughout society, there are also disparate effects of, of each of those things across a number of historically minoritized or marginalized groups. Um, that's important because each of those things plays into or becomes a part of a social determinant of health and therefore can lead to adverse um, disparities down the, the road as well, um, or adverse health, health outcomes. And that's actually the final thing that I'd like to, to particularly highlight um, in terms of the domains of the impact or the disparities that we observe. One of the things that I'm perhaps most worried about um, is the disparities that will get worse um, in other non-COVID health conditions. Um, so we know that there are longstanding disparities in other types of infections, including vaccine preventable uh, conditions, which I know was mentioned um, in the last session, um, in cardiovascular disease and diabetes, um, in maternal health, in a variety of other health domains. And with the disruptions um, and interruptions in care that we've seen in COVID, those will have disparate effects as well. And those disparities in other health outcomes are things that we will continue to see um, in the years and the decades ahead. So it's critically important that we think about structural solutions um, that we can implement now and the messaging around that that, that really um, causes us to engage directly with communities and patients and ensure that we're offering equitable systems and equitable care. I think one of the things that is most important for me in terms of how we think ahead, um, how, we, how do we actually get this done? How do we think about solutions? Um, how do we build a system that is safe for everyone to travel and safe for everyone in which to seek healthcare? Um, part of that requires us to do a lot of reflection and then a lot of change in the way that, that we work or the way that we think and even the way that we talk. And we can start in the way that we talk about the pandemic. So we have talked very proactively, very actively about masks and vaccines, and that's important. It's critically important. Masks and vaccines can save lives. They will save lives. They're already saving lives. We need to talk with that same sense of urgency and criticality about health disparities and health equity, because health equity is also urgent. It's also critical. And it's also something that if we enact it now and we use this critical opportunity and this momentum, um, instead of treating it as something that is just something to be um, noted or documented, but something that really needs to be acted on. We also have the same potential to save lives and prevent a lot of suffering. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And also uh, your uh, piece for the Iowa City Press Citizen was mentioned in the first segment. And for those who haven't had a chance to read it yet, it was it's really terrific. And it could be found on the International Programs website if you'd like to read it. It's a piece by Martha Carver. So thank you for starting us off, Martha. And I, I would like to go to you next, Denise, if you don't mind. So you are Associate Dean and a Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Family Medicine here in the Carver College of Medicine at the UI. Um, you come 
into contact in that clinical setting uh, with people from all over Iowa, people from many different backgrounds. And in some cases, uh, those people do not have English as their first language. And um, as COVID began to explode, and please tell me if this was also happening before COVID became a reality for us, but um, obviously there are many people who come to the UIHC who uh, are most comfortable in Spanish. Um, I know you're part of a group of physicians and medical workers who have tried to help some of the family members who have um, patients in the hospital and have a lot of questions. And um, you've tried to sort of help them uh, understand what fears might be reasonable to have and, and uh, help them break down barriers to care. Can you tell us a little bit about that effort? Yeah, so um, thank you again for having me. And, uh, you know, I, I too have learned a lot. This is a really wonderful um, group of folks who have a lot of really excellent knowledge. And I very much agree with, with what uh, Dr. Carbor said as well. This was what she said was very true and very excellent. Um, so, I, you know, we know that, um, that, you know, language barriers can be really, really challenging. Um, and obviously um, I can remember it's, you know, it's been about a year and it was actually a very scary time. You know, we didn't know very much about COVID at that time. And um, in our family medicine clinic, we quickly had to transition to um, figuring out how do we get people tested quickly? How do we access, people get access to get tested quickly, especially because we had limited tests right at the beginning of of this pandemic. Um, how do we help folks sort of navigate the system? And then the folks, especially who have been hit really, really hard, as many of have already shared within this program, have been folks of the Latinx community, particularly in Iowa, as uh, who is considered essential um, was uh, very obvious um, from the meatpacking industry to other industries that have high percentages of Latinx folks who are participating in those industries. And we knew um, very quickly that we had to figure out how how to provide language services, how to help people navigate um, um, how to get an appointment for a telehealth visit and what does that look like? And, you know, all of these things can be extremely complicated. And when you have, you know, a large family with lots of folks with high speed internet and significant amounts of English proficiency, it can be, you know, not as hard to navigate that. But if any of those things are missing, it can be extremely difficult to navigate that. So working in um, those spaces to try to make, um, you know, interpreters to have access to interpreters, especially um, in the um, uh, the influenza-like clinics, as well as on the telemedicine um, platforms. The other piece that was really, really important and something that I was not involved in was um, we have uh, quite a few uh, people who are in our uh, pulmonary and critical care teams um, who work in the ICU uh, and who are physicians and providers who um, are Spanish speakers. And, you know, especially at the beginning and even till now, you know, you can have limited numbers of folks who are um, able to go and visit. And so here are folks who are absolutely critically ill and who are intubated and are scared and sick and etc. And it's a very disorienting type of environment. And the family was, wants to know what's going on. The patient wants to know what's going on. And so having folks who can provide that culturally responsive care um, and take shifts um, to, you know, call families and speak to patients and do it in a way that is in um, people's most comfortable language that, that that is critically important and something that I'm proud and glad that we did. We also did a home hospitalist program, which I um, 
again, calling patients at home um, in, in Spanish and in uh, other languages uh, to help take care of them at home and give them access to be able to check vital signs and that sort of thing. So um, there was work that, that has been done, but I think as Dr. Carvor mentioned, like there is so much more work to be done to how do we you know, address systemic inequities in our healthcare system and do better, especially going forward. Yeah. Yeah, well, well, thank you for sharing that with us. And, uh, and now I'd, I'd like to move on um, to Kevin Washburn. I mentioned he's the Dean of the College of Law, also a member of the Chickasaw Nation. Uh, Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I think many of us had a hint of this, but you shared some statistics with me before the program that are some of the saddest statistics for COVID uh, deaths and other health issues and, and other things as well that are found within the Native American population uh, and your own background. Um, it gives you a unique perspective into the socioeconomic realities of Native American uh, life. Um, how does the health and well-being of Native Americans compare to that of other groups in the country at, at this moment in time? Well, it's interesting. There's some similarities and some differences. And Dr. Carver did a nice job of explaining that these are systems and structures that we've set up that create all this. And, that, and it's so true. And we've got a lot of inequities just built in. And Dr. Martinez talked about some of the issues with language and language barriers for the Latinx community. It's interesting. So we've got a different issue in the Native community, but it is related to language. So in the Native community, we not only have human beings dying from COVID, we have languages dying because it's, in many cases, the elders that retain the native languages the best. And if those people die, um, the language goes with them um, in many respects. And so that it's just a different level. It's, you know, similar disparities, but different ways that it impacts our communities. Across a range of social indicators, Native Americans face a really difficult world. Um, and some of those things are obvious to people, but some of them are not so obvious. So when we think of police violence and, and deaths at the hand of, hands of police, we think of George Floyd, we think of Breonna Taylor, and we think of, frankly, dozens of other names that we've heard over the last several years of African-Americans, Blacks, who've been, who've been killed by police. Um, the CD, CDC has studied this issue um, and because it's a public health issue. And between 1999 and 2015, Black Americans were killed by law enforcement at a rate of 2.6 people per million people. So 2.6 per million. During the same period, Native Americans were killed at the rate of 2.9 per million. So Native Americans, even though we think of this as a Black issue, it's actually worse for Native Americans. And there's a whole lot of issues, social indicators that are worse for Native Americans than for any other group, including injury-related deaths, suicides by men, suicides by women, um, overall mortality rates are really bad. And COVID early on, the first six months or so, nine months of the COVID epidemic, the hospitalization rates were you know, higher for Native Americans than for any other racial group. And it just shows that you know, racial equity has been a significant issue. It's an issue for differently for Hispanics and Latinx people and Black Americans and Native Americans. It impacts all of them very seriously though. And one of the, uh, there is some good news to report. Um, the, um, the Biden administration has taken a real significant approach to racial equity and it's not equality, it's equity. It's because you can't treat people equally and expect equities to be addressed. So uh, from the very start, the Biden administration has taken a bunch of steps for Native Americans. I'm not sure what they've done in the other communities because I'm not focused on those as much. I, I'm not as knowledgeable. But in the Native American community, they've done several steps. One of them was on his first day, um, President Biden um, opened up the FEMA 
disaster relief funds to tribes with a 100% cost share. So the tribes used to have to bring 20% of the, if they needed that, if they had a $10 million disaster and needed $10 million of relief, they would have to bring the first 2 million and then the federal government would bring the other eight. And that was a 20% cost share. It's now a 100% federal cost share. So Native American tribes are getting more support for these things. Another um, significant improvement was that the Biden administration opened the national strategic stockpile of medical supplies to Native American tribes. Um, and there's also been just a significant focus on the Indian Health Service, which serves tribes and reservation-based Native Americans and on urban Indian communities. And so they've been working to push vaccines out. And I will tell you, it seems to be making a difference. Six weeks ago, the only people I knew that were getting vaccinated were healthcare workers and Native Americans because the, the Indian Health Service was making a specific effort to try to help Native Americans because they are feeling the impact of COVID-19 so much more strongly. So that's what equity means. It doesn't mean giving every things to everyone equally. It means focusing on the communities that are hardest hit and making sure you're taking care of those. And we're seeing some evidence of that in the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, Kevin, I understand that you spent a large amount of your time growing up. I don't know if it was all of the time when you were growing up, but you lived on the reservation. And I think for, for a lot of us, it's a very sort of, uh, we have an opaque view of what it's like to live on, on a reservation. And um, what can you tell us about the kind of healthcare, the kind of schooling you were exposed to when you were a young man? Well, I, uh, I grew up in the Indian Health Service system. Um, that's where I got my health care growing up. And, um, and uh, you know, I was, I'm lucky to have had it. Um, it, wasn't, it was something that everybody complained about all the time. And it was offered, it was given back then by, to, by the Indian Health Service, by the federal government. Um, when I went off to college, I guess to law school, um, the tribe actually ended up taking over that system. And the tribe took the resources that the IHS had, the money, and used and hired its own healthcare workers and started taking over that that process itself. And actually, the care improved and the 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 quality and the customer service improved when the tribe took that function over. So it improved um, when the tribe actually started exercising its right to self-govern and 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 to use the federal resources um, to serve itself. And the reason for that. You, you, you know, you might imagine it's it's not easy to uh, a federal employee is not going to get terminated because they just inconvenienced an Indian family, but a tribal leader might get unelected in the next election if he inconvenienced or she inconvenienced an Indian family because she loses votes. So it's made the whole system much more accountable to Native Americans. So it has improved. Um, the healthcare system has improved in part by the greater involvement by Indian tribes in taking care of their own people. So there have some, been some improvements since I was a kid. Yeah. So we have uh, the other... Um, panelists joining you on this part of the discussion and in the prior one as well, people have been talking about these structural changes that need to be um, within, within the relationship of uh, tribal, uh, tribal leadership and U.S. federal leadership. What, what kinds of snags are there that happen there that, that perhaps should be uh, addressed in order to improve life for Native Americans? Well, I don't know. It, you, you have to be on Facebook to probably to notice this or have to have friends in a lot of different states. But you can see that the quality of the way that all of this stuff is rolling out is different in each of the states. And the quick, you know, how quickly what, what the priorities um, uh, states are making about um, distribution of vaccines is different from what's one state to the next. 
And um, you see a little bit of that in Indian country as well, because there are 574 recognized tribes in the United States. And mm -hmm. each of them theoretically has the power to do things a little bit differently. Um, now they've all taken this risk very seriously, again, in part because the loss of native languages and seeing elders pass away and, and in tribal communities, elders are elevated and you, you know, losing elders is a, is a, is a serious problem. And, um, and so they've taken it very seriously, I think, but there are differences from one tribe to the next, just like there are differences from one state to the next. And so that's one of the little snags, I suppose, is that, you know, you got too many decision makers, arguably. Yeah. Yeah, well, gosh, thank you. And uh, so let's turn to Jackie Easley McGee. Uh, you are the Director of Community uh, and Diversity Services for Mercy Medical uh, Center in Des Moines. Jackie, real pleasure to have you with us. And um, I wonder now if we could have a little reflection from you on what COVID has done to the Black community across our state, obviously with the caveat at the beginning that there is not just one community with everybody living in the same social circumstances and so on. But at large, um, how has the Black community fared during COVID, those living here in, in Iowa? Well, thank you, Joan. And uh, as I stated in the beginning, um, I really am delighted to be um, participating tonight because um, part of my work, um, most of my professional day work is involved in health equity. And thank you, everyone, for providing explanation of the difference between equality and equity. Um, I do work with every single um, unit in our health system and work ways to achieve and to eliminate the gaps, mainly through outreach, um, through many nonprofit organizations. Um, but um, I have been a lifelong member of the NAACP and currently I serve as the Iowa Nebraska Health Chair for the NAACP Conference of Branches. So just a little background for people who may not know who the NAACP is. In 1909, um, the call forged a consensus among willing Americans of all identities that was necessary to form a national organization that would advance the interests of people of color through coordinated action and reasoned argument. And more than a century later now, the NAACP, um, through litigation and probably the most famous um, of the NAACP efforts was certainly Brown versus Board of Education in 1954 with um, uh, soon to be Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall. Um, and then as we head into the 60s and beyond, um, we now are seeing you know, the litigated efforts and many of these police cases that um, Kevin Washburn has described, and certainly we are very, very involved in um, uh, police, uh, anti-racial profiling police efforts and scored a victory here in the state of Iowa within the last year with the legislature voting 100% as a whole um, to support, you know, those efforts in recognizing racial profiling. And so the NAACP in summary considers itself the largest and the oldest, the baddest and the boldest, the most loved, the most hated, the most feared, the most revered, the most cussed and the most discussed civil rights organization in the United States. 
And as they turn their focus then in 2021, have identified some strategic initiatives that they call game changers. And using that definition of vulnerable that Dr. Carver started our discussion with, I think applies to these areas. The first game changer was economic sustainability. And if you look at the number of homeowners in the African-American community, the number the um, least likely to have bank accounts, least likely to be able to receive a loan, you will see why economic sustainability has become one of the game changers for our organization. And then of course there's education. And I mentioned that um, historically, much of the NAACP's legal work has centered on distressed and inequitable school systems, um, in the, originally through desegregation efforts, um, but now looking more and more at equity in terms of um, teacher ratio, teacher to student ratio, and so forth. Uh, public safety and criminal justice is a game changer, and again, I've highlighted that um, certainly as we are looking at racial profiling issues, even in our own state here in Iowa, that's very important and significant in eliminating barriers and equitable dispensing of justice for all. Voting rights and political representation is a game changer. Now more than ever this year, we have seen um, uh, uh, obstacles now to some of the gains that have been made in the past, protecting and enhancing voting rights and fair representation has always been and will continue to be um, one of the game changers for the NAACP. Expanding youth and young adult engagement. Um, many people don't are, aren't aware that we have youth councils, and these are individuals, it's a chapter at Iowa City, these are individuals who are engaged at um, earlier levels and younger levels in this work. And so then finally, there's my area, which is health, health equity for all. And in 2021, um, I would like to think that we have been at the forefront of many people have um, stated earlier in our conversation how important this opportunity is. The pandemic, in my opinion, has ripped the Band-Aid off long festering wounds of inequities and historical trauma related to health measure outcomes in all people of color. And so now more than ever, as many people have stated, I call this the time to seize the moment and be able to use this as an opportunity where we can not only understand what vulnerable populations mean in this state, in this country, um, but um, healthcare truly as a public or racism as a public health crisis. So the NAACP in answer to your question is significantly focused on the COVID statistics that have revealed certainly disparities that we long have known have been there. Um, even here in the state of Iowa, where African-Americans represent about three, almost 4% of the population. Early on, the number of African-Americans, uh, who, who African-Americans who, Black Iowans, uh, who were inflicted with the virus, um, were almost double the population of our state. And certainly that was also reflected in um, 
other populations as well. And then now as we look at the numbers who are being vaccinated, it is disconcerting that um, only 1% of African-Americans nationally, and we see that same statistic here in Iowa, have been vaccinated. There are groups and organizations such as my own church that is hosting a mass vaccination clinic in a couple of weeks to really reach out and address um, those disturbing statistics. Mm -hmm. Well, one hears that uh, more persuasive than a government leader saying, hey, you really ought to get this uh, vaccine or someone from the CDC saying, um, absolutely get the vaccine. It matters when community leaders, people who are known in the community, what, whatever, um, perhaps a Latinx community, perhaps black community, when um, people who have worked with those populations before can step right up and say, you know, I've taken the vaccine. Uh, you, you have to sort of say, trust me on this. This is going to be better for you than not, than uh, not taking the vaccine. Is this one of the things you, you certainly mentioned that your church is having this vaccine vaccination drive uh, here in short order. Are you finding that there are community members in the Des Moines area who are stepping out like that to get personally involved? Yes, and not just Des Moines. And trust is a key factor. The NAACP did a poll, uh, I would say early summer to late summer, and um, found that trusted messengers um, individual leaders in the faith community, leaders of nonprofits that people were able to, you know, see and, and um, talk to and personal testimonies. About a week ago, I did, I conducted a panel, I coordinated a panel for I'll Make Me a World in Iowa, which is our African American festival, kicks off African American Heritage Month here in Iowa. And on our panel, um, in addition to having public health leaders from a couple of counties in Iowa. We had an individual who participated in the clinical trials early on, I believe at University of Iowa. And he really gave powerful testimony. He's an individual that is known here in Des Moines. Um, he works at Drake University and shared his story of why he wanted to participate in the trials. He did it for his family. His family had multiple concerns as to a lot of our families. And he felt that if he were to participate, share his experience with the side effects and live to tell about it, so to speak, that he would be able to really influence and make a difference. And he has, I believe, uh, in terms of making a difference in our community by sharing that experience. Wow, that's terrific. That's great. Um, I will just ask the group before we wrap up this uh, segment, is there anything anyone would like to add? This has been such a such an informative and inspiring conversation. I so appreciate it. And um, so I guess we'll just uh, say thank you to all of you. Um, our guests have been Martha Carvor, Denise Martinez, Kevin Washburn, and Jackie Easley-McGee. You'll be seeing Jackie in the next segment as well. So I hope to all of you uh, viewing the program, please stay with us for the final segment of World Canvas. And in that uh, segment, we'll be talking specifically about the issue of vaccine hesitancy. Um, I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs, and we'll be back in a moment. Moment. Thanks, everyone.
Hello again, and thank you for joining us for this World Canvas program on COVID care for marginalized and vulnerable populations. I'm Joan Care for UI International Programs. Um, I am pleased to introduce our, our guests for this segment, uh, where we'll be talking about vaccine hesitancy. Uh, Kimberly Dukes is with us. She is a research assistant professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the University of Iowa Hospitals and Clinics. Thank you for joining us, Kimberly. Aaron Scherer is Assistant Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine in the Carver College of Medicine here at the University of Iowa. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've already met Jackie Easley McGee, uh, the Director of Community and Diversity Services at Mercy Medical Center in Des Moines. Thank you, Jackie. And uh, Claudia Corwin has been with us in the earlier part of the program. She's the Director of the Iowa Global Health Network, also an Occupational Medicine Specialist and a Clinical Assistant Professor in the Department of Internal Medicine at the UI Hospitals and Clinics. So welcome and thank you all of you. Um, Kimberly and Aaron, I'd like to turn to you two first. Um, Aaron, let me go to you. Why would anyone hesitate to take a vaccine that's been tested and approved by the FDA? Um, well, it's, uh, there's a number of reasons. And as a social, social psychologist, I'm primarily interested in identifying and using uh, psych psychological processes that contribute to vaccine hesitancy to really try to promote it in these groups. And so I think that there's kind of two reasons why people might be hesitant to get a vaccine that's approved by the FDA. Um, one factor, which I'll call an information gap factor, is when people might be vaccine hesitant because, you know, they're, they're missing some key pieces of information um, about the infectious disease um, or the safety and efficacy of the vaccines. And so, um, you know, this is a factor that's focused on by most uh, theories of health behavior. Um, so an example of this would be, you know, the the pervasive belief, uh, concern about how quickly the vaccines are developed. So, um, you know, they, we haven't done a very good job about communicating that as public health uh, experts. And so I think that that's one of the things that, you know, if we provide that information to some people that might help shift them in, in a more positive way. Um, the other contributor, um, which hasn't received very much attention in the vaccine hesitancy literature, uh, is a psychological concept known as motivated reasoning. Um, and motivated reasonings are just our tendency to, you know, attend to information and process information in a way that's consistent with things we already believe. Um, so in the context of the COVID-19 vaccines, um, there's been two kind of main ways that this has been manifest. Um, there's, you know, obvious ways uh, such as the rapid changes that have occurred uh, in terms of vaccination tensions for Democrats and Republicans. You know, it's basically been, you know, they were apart and then they converged and now they're diverging again, um, as well as, you know, mistrust of the healthcare system by, by marginalized communities. Um, but there's also more subtle ways uh, that people can engage in motivated reasoning um, that might undermine their confidence in vaccines. Um, and based on psychological traits that they might have. Um, so we know that people, you know, the extent to which they vary in uh, how much they value um, moral and physical purity is associated with vaccine attitudes, um, as well as how much, how uncomfortable they are with uncertainty and, and they have, a, you know, how much they have a need to reduce uncertainty. Um, so I think with those two contributors in mind, you know, I, there's kind of three recommendations I have uh, to make when, when communicating 
uh, with with groups who might be a little more hesitant. Um, the first is, you know, meet people where they're at, not where you want them to be. I think one of the the sins of public health uh, messaging that we uh, constantly engage in is that we we select information that we think is important to communicate. Um, and then that's what we, we send out. Uh, instead of this, I think we really need to identify the information needs of a community. Um, and this has been brought before about using language uh, that, that a community is familiar with and comfortable with and resonates with. Um, so for example, you know, the way we've tried to deal with uh, allaying concerns about the speed of uh, COVID vaccine development and availability is by saying all these vaccines have gone through all the safety you know, protocols of the FDA. Um, but that really doesn't address, you know, how or why the vaccines were able to be developed so quickly without sacrificing safety. Um, and secondly, if you're already skeptical of, of, you know, government organizations or the FDA, saying that it's FDA approved isn't going to increase your confidence in the vaccine. Um, so it's kind of counterproductive. Mm -hmm. um, a second thing is, we know that providing information that kind of fills in these information gaps or corrects mis, uh, misperceptions, uh, they might work for people who are generally positive or maybe even neutral towards vaccines. Um, but however, there's studies showing that um, when you give corrective information to people who have negative vaccine attitudes, you can correctly um, kind of address the misconception and change the misconception so you can correct their belief but actually decreases their vaccination intentions, which is actually the outcome we care about. So you get this backfire effect. Um, and so as a result of that, uh, my second recommendation is um, more theory-based and that's redirecting these motivations that contribute to vaccine hesitancy in a way that might promote vaccination. So uh, as an example, you can think about needle phobias. So a lot of people don't get vaccinated because they're afraid of needles. Um, one approach you could take um, could be to draw attention away from the fact that you get, you know, a jab with the vaccine and highlight the number of needle sticks you might get if you're hospitalized with an infectious disease. So you're trying to take that, you know, kind of motivation and then uh, turn it around to promote the vaccine. And then finally, just, you know, this is brought up at the last session, you know, nothing is going to work if you can't build trust with these communities. Um, you know, there's a quote attributed to uh, President Theodore Roosevelt that nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and I think that's, you know, critical, uh, especially when trying to work with, um, you know, marginalized and vulnerable communities. You know, unfortunately, this means we should be should have been working with these communities well before the pandemic started. Um, but I think given where we're at now, it's a matter of identifying uh, trusted individuals uh, within those communities. You know, Jackie just was talking about this earlier, identify trusted individuals who can serve as advocates for, for COVID vaccination. Um, and we know that, you know, data doesn't move people, stories move people. And so getting uh, people from those communities to tell their stories about how they move from, you know, being skeptical of the vaccine to, to wanting to get the vaccine or their, or their experiences with the COVID vaccine um, are going to be more successful at improving vaccine uptake in those groups than just throwing data and information at them. Mm -hmm. 
No, that makes sense. Uh, do we know whether the vaccine hesitancy that we're learning about regarding the COVID vaccine is uh, greater or about the same as other kinds of vaccine hesitancy? Do, is there any data on that yet, or is it too early to know? If any um, there's been, yeah, there's been lots of data collected. Uh, I, I think it's hard to kind of directly compare, but I think that there is increased concern um, because it's important to, to, to note that vaccine hesitant doesn't mean that you refuse all vaccines, but it's on a continuum. So you can have people who, you know, are, are, you know, get all their vaccines, but still have major concerns about it. And I will say, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, and when we were talking about vaccines, you know, I was concerned about the speed that the vaccines were being developed and being made available. And it took months before I heard someone provide an explanation about how, oh, these vaccines are based on, you know, vaccine development from SARS-CoV-1 from the 2003 outbreak. So they had a foundation already in place. So they were able to move quickly on that mm -hmm. um, and, and other, other reasons. But um, so I think there is increased uh, hesitancy because we've done such a bad job communicating like critical information and concepts to people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you, Aaron. Um, I'm going to jump over to Kimberly now. Uh, Kimberly, your PhD is in anthropology and you're a research assistant professor in internal medicine. How do those fields mesh together? Um, I, that's an interesting question. I think in many ways. Um, actually, I think medical school uh, follows a lot of the same training that anthropologists use when they're trying to learn about um, a community. Uh, so you are uh, doing field work in a way, right? You're talking to people, you're um, in their daily life, you're asking questions, you're looking for patterns, you're paying attention to individual practice, and you're doing it kind of hands-on um, while you're doing it. So I think there are a lot of overlaps. Um, but I think in general, um, I am glad that uh, our Carver College of Medicine has been really historically open to medical anthropologists and sociologists. Um, and values that perspective um, of actually talking to patients or healthcare workers, understanding um, what their lives are like um, and kind of how that knowledge uh, can inform better healthcare, hopefully. Yeah. yeah. Well, so we just heard from Aaron and from others in the program as well that communication is really so key to um, not only helping people who are who have someone suffering in the hospital with a COVID um, uh, infection, but also helping all of us sort of understand what the vaccine can do. And um, is it also your feeling that communication is kind of the biggest hurdle? Um, I, you know, I think it's, a, again, a super complicated question as you've been asking uh, folks all night. Um, I would agree with Aaron that sometimes um, approaching things from we're just communicating the information we think you need uh, is not going to work and in fact can increase vaccine hesitancy. Um, so uh, I guess how I would kind of hedge that conversation would be that that communication can't be one way um, and it should be developed in collaboration with um, a wide number of communities uh, to ask and to listen what their concerns actually are um, and um, take those concerns seriously, not to treat somebody who is vaccine hesitant um, as somebody who is ignorant or uh, defiant in some way, um, to actually treat them as intelligent people with good questions um, and perhaps reasonable fears and reasonable distrust 
um, and to have them, for example, if we think about COVID, um, from an anthropological perspective, I think it probably would work better for any communication strategy to be developed in partnership with communities after listening to them about fears and concerns um, and giving them a real voice uh, and um, power in making decisions about the allocation of vaccines, um, how that should actually roll out um, and making sure uh, that their concerns are built in um, in an equitable way through the whole process. Um, and we should have been doing this long before, um, but certainly we should have probably had started having those conversations seriously as they were thinking about, we're trying to make a vaccine. Um, uh, and so it's too, it's really is too bad that we have kind of waited um, in many ways to think about it now. Well, and it was such a confusing year last year because we had so many political motivations on various sides that were that were splintering um, Americans into different groups and people following certain follow the science or listen to the president. There were different messages coming from different sources, and that I think uh, created a lot of confusion for lots of people. And some of that probably still um, remains. Let, let me turn back to um, Jackie here for a second. Um, you mentioned that the, um, the numbers of Black Americans who indicate that they will be vaccinated is still, it still seems to be very low. Um, I thought that I had heard earlier in the week that, that there appeared to be a little bit more acceptance to the idea of getting the vaccine among uh, the Black community. Uh, did I mishear that? No, and the number I was quoting is the number who have actually been vaccinated. So I think there are many factors. One is certainly we have the tiers. And, you know, as we um, advance through the tiers with populations and so forth, um, hopefully we'll see that number increase. However, we still have the concern about hesitancy. The Pew Research Center in November conducted a poll and about 58% African-Americans said that they planned to decline to take the vaccine. And of course, we have already um, highlighted some of the hesitancy factors. Um, historical trauma mm -hmm. is an issue that comes up a lot that I hear maybe more generational. Um, I, I imagine that you all are familiar with the Tuskegee so-called experiment, Henrietta Lacks, and the many, many examples of African-Americans being used as medical guinea pigs. And that then has affected a certain generation, I believe, of African-Americans. There are many other reasons besides those historical factors. But what I think has really been, um, if we can point to some things that have been positive during this period, is when that poll came out, um, many organizations came together, the NAACP, social, um, social organizations, sororities, fraternities, faith groups, and said, we cannot let that happen. We cannot allow more than half of our population um, not feel comfortable taking the vaccine. So as I mentioned earlier, um, many of us have been involved in panels that we have put together. We've had trusted messengers discuss um, the efficacy of the vaccine. I mentioned personal testimony from individuals who participated in trials. I think in um, addressing Aaron's um, very valid uh, issue that he raised about many people's concern about 
the vaccine rollout seemed to be fairly quick. Um, one thing that I know um, certainly impacted my family was having Dr. Kizumea Corbett, who you may have heard of. She was a lead scientist on the Moderna vaccine, actually say on national television, I understand the concern. We have been working on this vaccine since SARS mentioned. I, as an African-American scientist, would not participate in any type of trial that would do harm um, to my family, my ancestors. And I think that compelling testimony from her um, really has turned the tide in terms of some members of our population. And again, someone brought up, we have to go where people are too. And so one of the reasons I think that that number is low for African-Americans receiving the vaccine are the frustrations of where to get them and how to use technology that might not be available in everyone's home. And then the frustration of um, not being able to get an appointment. And so um, I'm proud that uh, my church has opened its doors. And at the end of the month, um, we have a partnership, a collaborative partnership of nonprofit organizations. We have 1,000 community members signed up to receive vaccines that day. And we are having in Central City, Des Moines, which I, and, and all they needed to do was call my church and make an appointment. We had a sign up to me, it was, was fairly easy to use. Those, I believe, are techniques and methods um, that really um, hopefully will be mirrored throughout our state and throughout the country in terms of going where people are. Well, Claudia, that kind of brings us back in a way to what you were saying at the end of the very first segment when you were talking about uh, transportation issues or seasonal workers who are here for a short period of time and then they move on. And that's that's got to be a huge problem for access, uh, not only to healthcare if you're ill, but to um, a vaccine should you want to get one. Yeah, it is. I mean, it, it plays out directly. Just today, I was speaking with a group of people at the state and we're thinking, so where, where if we want migrant, season, migrant farm workers to get vaccinated, where are our options? Well, could, we get, could they get vaccinated before they enter the country? Could they get vaccinated once they cross into Texas? Do they need to va get vaccinated once they're in Iowa? And looking at all these different points, and the H-2A visa workers actually don't stop in Texas. So there are just so many logistical issues. But the point... But this comes back to a point that Jackie's made and Martha has made is that we need to deconstruct the systems and the structures that create these barriers. And yes, we may not be able to do that in time for the vaccine this summer, but that's where our minds need to go. We need to use this experience as concrete examples, concrete evidence that we need to wind it back and really start looking at the structures that actually create these barriers. The one thing I wanted to say before we close is, is following up on something Kimberly and really Aaron has said, and the question you asked Kimberly, which was, what's, a medical what's an anthropologist doing in a medical school? And I have to say that, um, you know, I, I teach a course called Interprofessional Education for Medical Students. And so it's how to work with people in different professions. And as an Ahmed doc, I do that all the time. But, you know, I work with Kimberly and now I'm working with Erin. And Kimberly has 
is, has, is teaching me to rethink how I think about my patients, how I think about other people, and to be able to meet people where they are and to think from, try to think from the perspective of the people that we're trying to either help or to study or to engage. And it's really almost like going inside out. It's hard to describe, but it's, you know, the value of having people like Kimberly and Aaron in a medical school is just limitless. It just, it's a game changer, I think. And especially now that um, people are beginning to more highly value community engaged research and beginning, making that the starting point for thinking about any program, any project, um, or any new initiative to help people. It's great to hear. And I, and I didn't just ask the question out of curiosity. I was an anthropology major, Kimberly. So I'm I'm thinking, wow, how did you find your way into that? (laughs) Personal, personal interest in my part. But um, uh, gosh, we have a couple of questions that came from um, uh, listeners tonight. And one of them is, I I don't know who might like to address this. Do you believe that precision medicine is the next best step for addressing inequity in health for vulnerable populations? And if so, why? Could I, I would like to maybe answer that. One of the reasons that I was excited to join this panel discussion tonight is because every single person who has participated tonight is really impacting the future of medicine. Um, I I affirm what Dr. Corwin is saying about how important it is to have all disciplines um, in the field of healthcare, so to speak, not just medicine, but healthcare in general. I particularly have an interest in brain health or mental health, but I think it's important that we understand that I do, I um, have an orientation presentation that I do for new providers uh, when they begin work at my healthcare system. And I ask them to think not beyond or think beyond cultural competency when treating their diverse patient population, but more cultural humility. We want people to be able to be self-reflective and that cultural competency isn't a one-time class. It's not a one and done. It's a career long, it's a lifelong journey to being able to understand the diverse perspectives of your patients their cultural background, faith traditions, and how they present to the healthcare encounter. And so in that way, precision medicine, not so sure about that term, but I believe cultural humility might be what we're looking for in our future healthcare um, providers. Well, there's one other question, uh, and that is, um, is the University of Iowa a partner with the NIH All of Us Data Collection Project? Um, would you know, Claudia, or, or any of you? Um, apparently, this is a project that is meant to address some of the comorbidity issues that have impacted many minority populations. So in regard to gathering data from uh, folks here in Iowa, I, I guess, it's, I don't know the answer, so... I don't know the answer. Yeah, we we are involved. I can't remember if we are a um, just a recruitment site uh, or if we're involved in other ways. But uh, I am. I work with some of the genetic counselors. I know there's some at least some involvement with Great. UIHC and and the, uh, all of us program. 
the library is also a partner with uh, all of us um, in thinking about health literacy and getting that out into um, communities through libraries and other forms of outreach. Great, great. Gosh, well, I'm afraid we've come to the end of the program. So please let me thank Jackie, Aaron, Kimberly, and Claudia for being with us. And thanks also to each of our earlier guests. All World Canvas programs are available on iTunes, the Public Radio Exchange, and the International Programs website. And you'll also be able to view this program on YouTube. So I hope you'll join us for the next World Canvas on April 16th, when our topic is Gandhi at 150. Until then, for University of Iowa International Programs, I'm Joan Kerr, and good night. <laughs>